0: George Fielder, he's gone to the dog.
1: Well, looky here. Now this old gravelly voice is back for one more week of the Gone to the Dogs podcast. Man, it has been an interesting last couple of weeks for me. Um, podcasting is something that requires at least somewhat of a voice. <laughs> and that's been something that I've... Found in short supply uh, the last few weeks, uh, actually, few days. Uh, if you listen to the podcast uh, last week with my good friend Jimmy Wildman Meeks, you know that I've kind of been battling this COVID thing, but it looks like we got it uh, by the tail on a downhill slide, man. It looks like we're finally going to get over this thing. And we've got a good podcast tonight. If I can get through it, if I don't go completely horse on you and sound like a jackass bray in here, which that may not be unusual, uh, <laughs> but I've got a guest today that I'm really excited to talk to, and um, he agreed kind of on a spur of the moment to come on with me, and uh, I'm, I'm just real happy uh, that he has, and I'm going to introduce you to him in just a minute. I do want to take this time to mention our good friends out at DU hunting supply, uh, com. Those guys out there, of course, you know, they're the uh, gurus when it comes to anything electronic to do with our hound tracking and so forth. And of course, it's been interesting times lately with this supply chain, uh, situation and, and can't get collars and, and things like that. but. Uh, Jason and Buddy and all the crew out there at DU Supply have been on the phones uh, constantly trying to procure equipment, trying to answer your questions, trying to solve your problems that you might have. I'll put their customer service up against anybody in the country. They absolutely do a phenomenal job. So We just want to give a shout out, pay the bills here before we get started with this podcast to DU hunting supply. If you need anything at all in the line of hunting supplies and especially the electronic line of things, hunting apparel, collars, leashes, anything along that line, see the guys out there and they'll be happy to take care of you. They always take great care of their customers. That's just what they do. In past podcasts I had mentioned that Pro Hound magazine would no longer be published. And there was a decision by uh, Professional Kennel Club (PKC) that they would stop publishing Prohound. Well, apparently that wasn't a very popular decision, because shortly after that announcement was made, and we made it here on our on the Gone to the Dogs podcast, uh, Roger Dale Carnegie, the president CEO of PKC, announced that uh ProHound will once again be published. I think perhaps some of the stats uh that appeared in the older issues of ProHound may be omitted now, because, uh, as they tend to be out of date by the time the, the magazine reaches the mailbox. But at any rate, ProHound will continue. I'm proud of the fact that at one time I was editor of ProHound magazine, so I'm glad to see that announcement come around and and uh, just wanted to let you know about that. Coming up, the next time I'll see some of you guys uh, face-to-face, will be at Batesville, Mississippi, in the big Senate, Civic Center there, the middle of February for the UKC Winter Classic. That's going to be a lot of fun. It always is. Uh, kind of proud of the fact that I started that hunt uh, we started in Albany, Georgia. It ran there for many years before UKC made the decision to move it to Batesville. So there's a big r- rodeo arena there. It's all indoors, uh, just a great place to visit, to see all the uh, uh, vendors and uh, all the supplies and and the bench shows all in the same place, and all the casts are called each night from the same location. Also. And also, it's a great venue. There's a lot of motels, a lot of, uh, lot of uh, restaurants all around Batesville. So that's coming up. Uh, I didn't get the exact date. It's the middle of February. Everybody knows when it is. It's around the fourteenth, I think, this year. Well, without any further ado, as they say. I want to introduce our guest for tonight. Uh, this is a guy that first contacted me, uh, through, uh, Facebook messenger. Um, I've old dogs can learn new tricks and I learned to use messenger <laughs> some time back. And it's a convenient way to kind of communicate with people. And, uh, right away, I kind of took a liking to this guy because of the questions that he'd asked me. They were stimulating. They were, uh, on point they made a lot of sense um and uh, we got to to be uh pretty good uh messenger buddies there i guess you'd call it but let's welcome to the uh gone to the dogs microphone tonight mr elijah burnett from the great state of tennessee elijah how you doing
0: i'm doing good how are you doing
1: well as you can tell i sound a little bit like a Boil frog in a a bucket or in a croaker sack, I guess. But um, we're going to make this thing work, I guess. But uh, you're there right in the middle of the state of Tennessee, aren't you? You told me right between Knoxville and uh, Nashville, if I'm correct.
0: Yeah, we're, I mean, about as center in the state as you can get as far as where we're at. Just square in the middle.
1: Well, that's a good place to be, I guess. Um, what kind of work do you do, Elijah?
0: I do body work. It's mostly paint with some uh, metal work and stuff like that. But most of what I do is the paint side of things and buffing. And oh, okay. All that.
1: Well, wintertime's your busy time, then, isn't it, with fender benders and all that, or or not?
0: Uh, with the snow we've had lately, it's sure picking up <laughs> that and. Uh, <laughs> deer hits you can always tell when oh, the deer yeah. are moving
1: oh yeah i imagine that's true you know i lived in michigan for many years and and we would have 1500 car deer accidents in my county alone that was kalamazoo county where ukc's registry is and we didn't even make the top 10 on the michigan county's list of, of deer uh, deer car accidents uh, so that uh, but you know I have I guess I, I should knock on wood I have never actually been driving <clears throat> when we hit a deer I I have been riding as a passenger in fact my old podcasting buddy Chris Powell he and I started the Hounsman XP podcast together we were coming back from pot, uh, plot days one night back uh, to Indiana, uh, well, from southern Indiana, back toward Cincinnati. And uh, a, a deer just, I guess, decided he just was tired of living <laughs> because uh, he, we were doing about 65, and he decided that he was going to take us out. <laughs>
0: That's about how and, they normally do it.
1: <clears throat> yep. And Chris had a new truck, a beautiful new Chevy truck. And of course, I think it was, I think he told me later on somewhere around $7,000 is what the damage was and to the front end of that truck. Of course, they don't, you know, there's a lot of, when I was a kid, they had a big old steel bumper and everything on them, but it's not quite like that now, is it?
0: No, they're not near as much metal on them as they used to be
1: yeah <clears throat> well let's talk about you a little bit here about your family and all you were ra you raised in crossville
0: born and raised i was born in 95 and i've lived here ever since
1: i got you well now were you born in the country or in town or what What was kind of the situation
0: i worked. it's just a little small town it's got a main street and a walmart and a few other businesses but it's growing more and more every day. We're getting more. We're right on the interstate, so we're getting a lot of new stuff moving in.
1: I got you. Now, I've always thought of when I hear stories about crossfall and stuff, now there's some wild boar hunting in the area there where you are. Is, is there or is that is that not right?
0: Uh, we've got a few hogs if you go off uh more towards White County and well, if you go to any county surrounding us, you run into a whole lot of hogs.
1: I see. Mm-hmm. So is it hilly there where you are? I've been through there, but I, I just I don't remember.
0: Uh, some places are flat-ish, and then other places are as straight up and down as you want to get. It all depends on what part of the county you're in, really. I got you.
1: So you got all kinds of different ways to hunt.
0: Yeah. Right. Any way you want to, you can pretty much find a spot to do it. Okay.
1: okay, did you grow up in a family of hunters? Was your dad a hunter?
0: Actually, no. Uh, the first person I ever went coon hunting with was uh, my mom's brother, my uncle. He took me and he gave me my first dog. It was a dog he had, and uh, he gave her to me and pretty much had to figure it out by myself.
1: Well, you know, that can be the, the, a difficult way, but sometimes it might be the best way. And I'm not sure if you and I've talked about this on our, in our exchanges back and forth or not, but you know, sometimes these dogs learn more hunting them by themselves than they do hunting with other dogs or, or what we're trying to show them. And by just exposing them to situations, you know, that, that, uh, so maybe maybe that's a pretty good way to learn. I guess the lessons we learn ourselves are the ones that probably stick with us the best and all. My situation was a little different than yours. You know, I had a father that was a tree dog man. You know, he had grown up there in Tennessee, in Dixon County, and, and with cur dogs. And, uh, you know, and it was, they were a way of life from the time he was just a, ki- a kid. You know, he would tell me about his parents, let, telling he and his older brother that they could go down the river bottom coon hunt or possum hunting with Old Pat and Mike, those cur dogs. But they weren't to get any farther away than the folks could see the lantern light from the front porch. And if they went down the river bottom there, and they knew how far they could go and still be able to see that lantern light, and if <laughs> if they did, I didn't have. I never asked Deb what happened if the dogs treed beyond that. What did they do? <laughs> but uh, I I would imagine knowing boys <laughs> to be boys, I imagine they'd kind of slip on over there and see if they could knock that possum out <laughs> before they oh, went yeah. back to the house.
0: <laughs> I know that's exactly what I'd be doing.
1: Yeah, for sure. Uh, and it was such a heritage for me because later on, you know, I was able I was able to uh hunt on the same farm that my dad grew up hunting as a kid, you know. And I can still go back there today and hunt all things although things were quite different there now. Interstate forty runs right through the family farm, uh, mm-hmm. which it wasn't there when I was a kid and and uh, the recent tornadoes that came through Tennessee uh cleared a lot of the trees that obscured uh, Interstate 40 from the from the view of the house. And now I'm told that, uh, you know, it's pretty easy to see the interstate now. But at any rate, um, growing up, uh, you know, with tree dogs, with a dad that loved to, to coon hunt and, and later on bear hunt and all and have tree dogs was a real treasure for me because my dad was always teaching me something, showing me something, telling me something, telling me the stories about when he was a kid growing up. And uh, so it was just a storehouse for me of information where a guy like yourself really didn't have that. And that's what I think probably led to this conversation tonight between the two of us and, and our communication online, is. You know people have questions. I had questions when I was a kid, but I had an a ready source of information and uh what have you uh, uh have you kind of leaned on these podcasts, not just this one, maybe others that you listen to for information to help you with your dogs uh how How do you view that
0: uh well, most of the stuff that I've learned has either came. Just straight from trial and error, there's a few people around me I know that do hunt dogs, and I've always been able to ask them, And but I'd honestly say 90% of what I know, I've figured out the hard way, for better or worse. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> okay. But it is well, always let's, nice to... Let's get to, down... The, uh, oh, I was just going to say it is nice always nice to what? Nice to l- be able to listen or have somebody like you or one of the other podcasts that you can ask and get some tips from.
1: Right. Well, that's kind of the idea, you know, none of us, I don't think that are doing these podcasts want to get to present the image that we know everything. Um, And, uh, but we are, you know, more than willing to share information with people, especially new hunters. And that's why especially I wanted to have you on, uh, Elijah, because, you know, I I know that you uh, have hunted for for some time and uh, you've sent me videos of your dogs and and so forth. So you've got a good grip on this thing called night hunting or coon hunting. But uh, yet, you know, questions arise twice uh, training things uh, pop up from now, uh, now and again and so forth. Let's go back and and let's just talk about you and about your dogs. Uh, What was the first tree dog that you had? Uh,
0: The first dog I ever had, she's a little uh, Kerr-Walker mix, and I called her Sadie. Uh, I got her when she was about two years old, and Mm -hmm. she wasn't running or treeing or anything, and I hunted her for at least a year and a half before she ever even barked i mean i couldn't she wouldn't bark at a drag or a dead coon or anything or even a squirrel i was just trying to get her to bark honestly and uh, uh somewhere around i think 2013 or 14 we had a big ice storm so i was stuck at the house and i just walked up to a field by my mom and dad's and turned her loose and she treated her first squirrel with about uh an inch and a half of solid ice on the ground and that's all it took uh so i kept squirrel hunting her and i guess i got bored and i decided i'd turn her loose at night and she started treeing coons just like it come natural but uh she was a hard hunting dog an extremely hard headed dog and she's honestly taught me about everything i know about training dogs and the key thing she taught me was just to be patient.
1: <laughs> I got you. Well, now, is she the kind of red and white looking uh, yeah. cur dog looking that uh, you sent me the videos? She's a nice tree dog. She's a beautiful dog, actually. Now, were there hunters there that kind of inspired you to want to get out with her and make a tree dog out of her? Or was it just something that you decided on your own?
0: I went with my uncle and uh, one of my cousins a few times, squirrel and coon hunting both, and I just really enjoyed it. So I figured I'd try to find a puppy and train it myself. I didn't really have the money to buy a started or finished dog, so I went with a young dog and went from there.
1: I got you. Well, how were you able to get her? Did you somebody have puppies for sale? or? Uh, but how'd you come about her?
0: My uncle actually had her, and he wasn't hunting her for one reason or another, and he just said I could take her. And, well, I wasn't going to turn down a free dog at that point, so <laughs> that's what I did.
1: hmm Were you in <laughs> high school at that time, or?
0: Uh, Yeah, I got her, I believe, my senior year of high school. and
1: I got you. Mm-hmm. So you did you learn your trade uh, in, in high school, or did you, something that you did after you got out of school?
0: Actually, I just, uh, my cousin worked at the shop I work at now, and he just called and asked if I wanted a job. Everything I know was on the job training, so.
1: I got you.
0: I got you.
1: Okay, so you got this Walker Kerr Cross, right? Mm-hmm. And you said it took you probably a year before she treed anything. Yeah. And then on this one icy, snowing day, she trees a squirrel. Yep. And that turns the light on for her. And from that point on, she just went right on and, and treed stuff, right?
0: She'll tree whatever would climb. Coons, possums, squirrels. Uh, She's even treed two or three bobcats, I think. Wow. So- if it'll yeah. climb, she'll treat it.
1: Well, you told me something, and looking back over our messages back and forth to each other and all, you said that she's a very deliberate, slow trailing dog. Tell me about that.
0: She's one of the dogs where, uh, I guess it's a lack of confidence you'd say, but she her nose has to take every single step that that coon made, and when she finally does, I mean it. Don't matter if the track's old, cold, just a crappy track, whatever. When she finally gets in her mind that that's for sure the tree, the coon went up, she's 100% sure when she barks. So, I mean, she generally has the coon. She's extremely accurate. And then uh, while she's really slow on tracking, she'll tree a layup like there's no tomorrow. She's extremely good at windin' coons and squirrels.
1: Wow. A real meat dog, as we would say, back in the mountains. Uh, I know, uh, looking back in the history of coon hounds, some of the very first hounds that came across the Midwest and all were the old, what they called old glory strain black and tan dogs. And these came down from the. There were people named Holmes, Lingo, and different people like that that had these imported. They were actually foxhounds that had been imported to this country. They were the old-fashioned long-eared dog. Don't know if a young man your age has ever seen a picture of one, but they had tremendous ear spreads. Their their ears would nearly drag the ground. <clears throat> And they had a trailing, excuse me, that commercial break was brought to you by COVID-19, or as my friend Nubbin Moore calls it, Kovic. He likes to put a K on things. He goes to Walmart, and he asked me if I had Kovic. And Nubbin has a unique way of, uh, of uh, expressing himself sometimes. So, Nubs, there's one on you, buddy. <clears throat> Anyway, we uh, were talking about these old dogs. They called them skylookers. They would take a track and walk it step for step for step. And when they got a good whiff of that coon scent or whatever, fox, they would stop, plant their feet, throw their head back as far as they could and give out a long bellow. And then they'd proceed to trail to the next good whiff, and they'd do the same thing. And they called them skylookers because they'd stop and look up at the sky when they'd bark. But they were meat dogs, and they were, A, back then there was no night hunts. There were no field trials. The Walker family hadn't gotten possessed by uh, having foxhounds that could run the red fox to ground in, in middle Kentucky. These were dogs that were used to put meat and fur, you know, meat on the table, fur on the backs. And, 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 uh, so anyway, does this dog exhibit any of that kind of behavior when she trails? Does she stop and look up when she barks or does she, or does she open on track at all?
0: Uh, she's dead silent on track. Uh, she won't bark at all till she hits a tree, but, from what I've been able to watch of her of the day and when she's kind of close at night, her nose pretty well stays buried on the ground the entire time she's working a trap.
1: <clears throat> I got you. I hunted with a friend in, in uh, Michigan for several years, John Cripe. Haven't heard from John in a little while. He moved out to Idaho, and I hope he's doing well. He had an old plot dog named Hank. And Hank would keep all the hide rubbed off his nose. He looked like a red nosed bulldog where his nose drugged the ground trailing. <coughs> and uh, uh, he was a Von Plot bred dog, the old Plot family bred dog. Slow as Christmas, but he was sure and he was an accurate tree dog. And John caught a lot of Michigan coons with him over the years. Uh, but. Uh, Of course, the field trials and night hunts and all that stuff, I think, uh, replaced that kind of dog for most people uh, because they wanted a dog that, you know, was quick on the strike, quick on the trail, quick to the tree. And uh, that kind of dog just didn't work out all that well. Well, you said you had patience and obviously you do. Because you've been willing to hunt this kind of dog and obviously enjoy her um uh, can you think of some some favorite hunts you had with her?
0: uh actually, last Monday, I believe it's going to have to go down as my favorite hunt of all time. uh my garmin ship back to Garmin right now because I broke the screen on it so. I just took her out by herself the other night because I can always get her back if she gets gone for too long or something like that. And uh, it was just all I took was uh, her, an old carbide mining light, and a single-shot Remington 22 that was made in, I believe, 1939. And uh, she ended up treeing one, and I knocked her out knocked it out to her and i got that coon at the taxidermist already i'm going to have that one put up on the wall
1: well that's one of the conversations that we had that i for sure wanted to talk about and uh because you and i both have a, a similar experience in that i i actually started hunting with a carbide light i mean that's what what we had to hunt with um uh, I lived in West Virginia. Uh, the coal mines, of course, uh, were there, and the carbide light had been used in the in the coal mines. In fact, if you pick up a copy of my book on To the Dogs and Hunters' Journey, you'll see a chapter in there talking about the different lights, the different kinds of lights and the progression of those lights down through the years and so forth. I believe that chapter is called Let There Be Light. And so then my first battery type light was a Kohler wheat light, which was a mining light, a four-volt light that the coal mines used. But at any rate, I began hunting with a carbide light. And uh, I just so happened to have a Remington uh twenty-two single shot rifle. I think that it did you ever check the model number on yours?
0: Uh wanna say it's a five fourteen or something. Mm-hmm. I know it's a five hundred and something. I just don't remember right offhand okay. what it is.
1: Well mine I believe is a model forty one, but I could be right wrong about that. There's also a model sixty one, uh Winchester. This was a Remington that my dad, it's a target master. Uh, my dad and his brother ordered it from Sears, and they paid $5 for it, brand new. <clears throat> it's single shot. It has, you work the bolt, and you have to pull, you have to cock it before you shoot it. Uh, there's, it will shoot shorts, longs, or long rifles. and. uh <clears throat> It was broken. It well, Actually, it sat behind the door of my mo- uh, grandmother's farmhouse in Dixon County, Tennessee for many, many years. It was there when I was a kid, and we shot. Uh, we used it. We squirrel hunted with it. We would go out to the old sycamore tree out by the mailbox and shoot sycamore balls off the tree with it. Someone dropped the bolt or knocked the gun over, and it broke the bolt. And it sat there uh, like that for many years behind the door. And then when my mo- uh, grandmother got quite old, she gave the guns that she had there uh, to my dad. And uh, so I inherited that rifle, and I was able to send it to a gunsmith in Midland, Michigan, and have them, they found the part for me, And they replaced that part. And so, very much like you did, I took the gun, the old carbide light, one of my plots, went out one night and turned a dog loose, treated a coon, went, found the coon with the carbide light, shot it out with that old 22. And uh, it felt good. (laughs) I felt like I had stepped back to the depression era of the 1920s when my dad was growing up on that farm in tennessee and uh so what what inspired you to want to do that
0: uh, well i really just wanted to kind of get to know more about what the early people in the sport did and how they hunted and stuff like that cuz i mean i started with a 4d mag light and uh mm-hmm. see what well, uh, a tracker classic just one of the old beep beep collars. yeah and uh since then i've got bigger more higher powered lights and i've got a garmin alpha and i just kind of wanted to ease back and just take it easy one night and see how they used to do it it's just always oh. intrigued me how they used to do it before we had lights that could shine 10 miles through the air and stuff like that.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I remember I never did hunt with a, what we used to call a bullseye lantern, uh, a, a Dietz, uh coal oil or kerosene lantern. Uh, <clears throat> they were very popular all through the farm country, all across the United States. And I wrote about those too. And my friend Bryce Matthews there in Indiana, I think, was able to go and find one and and uh, perhaps clean it up and for, get it back into to hunting shape. And I know you can find these lanterns in the Amish community around the country. Uh, but that's the kind of light that my dad grew up hunting with. When I came along, we had the carbide light and then we had uh, a regular flashlights. Uh, and at first, it was just a two cell. And then <clears throat> Bill Boatman and Company in Ohio came along and created a light called the Dyna Light. Did you ever see one of those, a plastic six cell flashlight?
0: Uh, I can't say I have.
1: Okay. If you see a copy of my book on the cover, you will see the lens of a light. There a flashlight uh, that's laying there with a dog leash and a honey, a calling horn, and and some pictures and so forth. Well, that was a boatman Dynalite, and it had six D cell batteries, and they ran uh, side by side. There were basically the design was molded plastic, and there were two uh, tubes that each held three batteries. So it was the the length of a a three-cell, but it had six-cell. He advertised that as having 90,000 candle power. Now, I don't know how you measure a candle, (laughs) but I could stand in front of my house and shine the stop sign at the end of the road, which was a long way (laughs) with that light. And man, I thought I was Mr. Coon Hunter. Uh, had the carbide light for walking. Had the Dyna Light slung on a rawhide strap over my back. <clears throat> and these things were were uh, waterproof. They'd float you dropped them in the creek. And later on, they came out one with came out with one with a. Um, fluorescent ring on it so that if you dropped it you could find it. And my dad had that. He had the black light with the fluorescent ring. Mine was a gray or uh and I believe it was the opposite way around. I think my dad had the gray one with the red ring on it. That was the basic one. But I had the one with the fluorescent light. And uh so my dad and I hunted with those for many, many years. And a lot of other coon hunters would use what they call a Texan flashlight which was a six or seven cell flashlight and you had little extensions that you could screw on the back end of it to make the light longer and brighter and uh, guys would put those on a strap over their back so i've talked about this stuff on podcasts before but since you know it it was of interest to you i thought it'd be kind of interesting to to talk about it but uh All right. Well, okay. So let's establish you and I both are history buffs and we like to go back and do things the old way. I know when my boy was in scouts, uh, they had uh, what they call frontier camping fraternity. And the boys would go and uh, build teepees and lash things together and try to copy the old ways as much as possible. I think there's a lot of fun in doing stuff like that. Uh, Just trying to go back and see how people lived and and it's really amazing to me how they actually did make it you know
0: yeah you're right on that one just the way they used to do stuff it's i probably would have died pretty young (laughs) well let's
1: talk about a little bit now about where we went from having this older female um and obviously you were able to catch squirrels and coons and and so forth. Does she treat possums or uh,
0: has she been uh, pretty
1: straight off the?
0: She did for a long time, but the more I hunted her and the more coons she got out to her, the seems like the less and less she's treated. So, I mean, I see. she's just kind of broke herself over time over off of that.
1: Well, that's good. That's That's usually what they do. Well, uh, all right, so you have, now what's the progression? What was your next dog that you got after her?
0: Uh, my next dog was little Walker female, and uh, she turned out she was absolutely scared to death of a coon and a twenty-two going off at night. But uh, she was a pretty good show dog, so I sold her to somebody that had more interest in showing than they did hunting. And, uh, let's see my next. So she was coon, a
1: purebred Walker dog. She, yes. she was a registered Walker dog. Uh, huh. okay.
0: Uh, and then I bought after her, I bought another male Walker and he's turned out to be a pretty decent dog. Uh, uh, there ain't nothing really that jumps out of, at you. He's just a good solid coon dog. He has some faults that, I still need to work on, but if I don't ever get him fixed, I can't say I'm displeased with him. And uh, Actually, the dog I've been asking you some questions about here lately, he is a American leopard hound. I bought him off some folks down in Alabama. I believe it was 4G kennels. and uh, He's got all the brains and the smarts, but this season's been kind of rough on tree in any coon, so if I can ever find any good tracks, I believe he'll take off and start doing his thing.
1: Well, that sounds good. Let's talk about him a little bit and some of the things that you've been asking me about him, About uh, if we can kind of walk through a little bit about that. Uh, so how old was he when you got him?
0: Uh, I got him as a eight-week-old pup.
1: I got you. About what age did you start trying to fool with him with any kind of game? Um, uh, entice him or, or you know, pique his interest?
0: I tried starting, well, honestly, the first time I got a coon hide that was fresh after I got him. But uh, for whatever reason, he don't show a lot of interest in hides which I've heard people say that you'll have that every now and again. So I didn't take that as a big cause for concern. So uh, mostly it's just been trying to get on the coon and let him see it, figure out what the other dogs are doing. And when he gets that figured out, I'll start hunting him by itself.
1: Okay. Well, let's talk about him just a little bit. Is he a big pup? Is he going to have any size to him?
0: Uh. He's about 65 to 70 pounds right now. He's full grown.
1: I see. How old just, is
0: he? Uh, going on two. Mm-hmm. But my biggest issue, I like I said, he's got all the tools, but I've lost pretty much every spot, but one place that I've got to coon hunt and they're real thin on it. So it's just been a problem of actually finding game to work him on
1: well that it certainly is a problem and i was so fortunate through the years in michigan to have excellent coon hunting everywhere i turned you know and and uh, so it made starting well-bred pups fairly easy because if they had it genetically i could bring it out in them by exposing them to game you know fairly fairly easily and uh I, w- I did not hunt dogs a lot with older dogs when they were young, you know, just enough maybe to get, pique their interest a little bit. Then I would start taking them for walks by themselves. And, um, and I've always liked to do that way. Uh, some of the things that we, we've talked about down through our, our, uh, weeks, I guess we should say of. Of of communicating with each other and all have been uh, some of the things that you seem to be concerned a little bit about the dog. Uh, do you want to go over any of those that we talked about, or do you want me to lead the way on that?
0: Uh, go ahead and lead the way on that one if you don't care. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, it seemed to me like you were concerned at one time about him not barking at the tree. Is that correct?
0: Yeah. Uh- and he's actually improved on that one since I've started taking your advice a little bit. Well, a lot, actually. Uh, I have just had to start tying him back any time the other dog's tree. He gets tied back, and if there's a coon in the tree, I'll pet him up and try to get him excited and let him know that these other dogs are doing what you need to be doing. and He's catching on pretty good on that.
1: Okay, so now you're tying him back, and at times you're harvesting the coon, but you're not letting him have the coon. No. Correct?
0: Not lately.
1: Mm-hmm. And what has been the result of that?
0: He's, it seems like it's increased his drive a whole lot. He's starting to hunt deeper and try to work these real old bad tracks I'm getting onto harder but a lot of this stuff's just hard on a dog that ain't already settled out to figure out on his own
1: well yeah but so when you go into the tree i think i told you you know to tie him back and uh, encourage the other dogs if they've got the coon and if you're going to harvest the coon shoot it out let them have their reward and leave him there, uh, wishing that he could come to the party, so to speak, and uh, to pique his interest and incre- increase his his drive, so to speak. I I've always done that, and it's always seemed to work well. Will not work with every dog, not every, but you know nowadays, and we've had this discussion a lot too on podcasts. Puppies today are rarely duds just plain out duds uh there was a time years ago where it was possible to get a litter of pups and some of them just wouldn't do anything but you don't find that very much now you find little you know little things that you'd like to fix and you'd like to like to make them uh uh you know improve on but uh that's one of the things right there that I think is one of the easiest ways uh, to get a puppy to turn on the switch is to just tie him back and not let him have any fun, and uh, he he's going to learn that you know all the fun stuff happens there at the tree. Yeah. Now what does he do when the dog's tree at is he out there just roaming around or does he show any interest on the tree that they're on or, or do you have to go kind of lasso him and, and, and tie him?
0: Uh, about, well, every time the dogs have treed so far and he's been there, uh, he'll be within probably 10, 15 feet of the base of the tree. Just smelling around. Uh, I guess trying to figure out what the other dogs are what exactly they're barking about. You know, just kind of curious. He Mm -hmm. knows there's something there that he's supposed to be after, but uh, he just ain't been able to figure it out great yet.
1: Okay, let's, let's build a scenario here a little bit. And we'll talk about real situations. And then I'll give you a choice of which you'd rather have. Okay, we've talked about your older female, how deliberate she is. But when she trees, you can just about cock the gun. Yeah. Okay. We've got this young dog. He wants to be pretty sure that something's up there or he's not going to get really excited about that tree. So he's kind of acting a little bit like her in that he wants, I believe, I've never been hunting with him, but I believe he wants to know that there's something up that tree before he gets real excited about it. Yeah. And if he knows that there's something up there, it's going to get him real excited. Okay, which would you rather have? Now, this Walker dog that I have named Cruz has ended up being a disappointment to me, okay? When Cruz, the first time I took him to the White River Refuge, he was five months old. We turned the dog loose, and they ran and tree a coon. I took Cruz on a leash into that tree. He'd never been on a wild coon. He'd seen, I think, one cage coon when he was a puppy up in Pennsylvania. The dog is bred out of this world. He is a tree dog out of this world today. He has a mouth that most guys salivate over. He can run a track. He has an issue, and that is having the coon enough. Of the times that he treats. When he was five months old, and I led him into his first tree, by the time he got about 15 feet, 20 feet away from that tree, he threw that head in the air and pulled on the leash, treeing all the way in to the base of that tree. And I held him there, and he threw his head back and treed every breath. Yeah. Five months old. Okay. Now, which would you rather have? A dog that shows you that at a very early age, all of this tree style, all of this treeing, or a dog that's maybe hesitant, needs to be sure, you know, and step by step begins to gain confidence and begins to exhibit a uh, a solid tree in style, and evidence by something sitting over his head, instead of you know just putting on a magnificent show at the tree, and not be able to show the evidence. You 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 get what I'm saying?
0: Yeah. Uh,
1: I, and, and I know what your answer is going to be, or at least I think I do. <laughs> You're going to want a dog that produces the goods. Yeah. And and that's what we all want, you know, and I've, I've had people tell me, well, the dog needs to be checked for thyroid and he needs this and he needs that. Um, I don't know. Uh, and I'm not, you know, my, my mind is made up, you know, I, I'm not hopeful that the dog will ever uh become the dog that he could be oh he treats coons don't get me wrong he treats coons and and you know and when he does and when he's right he makes you love it yeah but i'm just saying that i think this young dog of yours is going to be one of those that perhaps learns a little at a little slower pace he want he's going to want to be sure and I think that might be some part of his lineage because he comes from a line of dogs that are probably what we commonly call meat dogs. You know, they want to have the meat when they treat. What What are your thoughts about that, Elijah?
0: Uh, me personally, <clears throat> I just, all I'm doing with that dog, if it's bred right, is showing it I'm allowing the older dogs to show it what to do, and as long as he as long as a pup shows me that he's got the drive and the want to to tree, I'll give him all the time that he needs uh I don't really competition hunt, so if they're a little slow on the track, that's not a big problem with me uh just I prefer them to be. Pretty accurate, I don't want to walk to a whole lot of trees that ain't got anything in them
1: well, I think your demeanor speaks for the type of dog you hunt, and I think we're all that way uh down deep inside we're like our men- our our mental i mean our our ma- dogs are more like their masters because they learn I think from the personality of their master, you know do you follow what I'm saying there yeah,
0: uh, that's. Well, you just put it into better words than I did. I want a dog that, you know, when you get ready to go, you put them in the box. They're excited. They're ready to go. They have the drive and the want to to go hunting because that's the whole reason I hunt is to be just get out in the woods and clear your mind and just have a good time and uh, just That's what I want to see out of a dog. I'm there to have a good time and I want them to be there to have a good time.
1: Well, you know, that's basically why I wanted to have you on the podcast today, Elijah. It's because there's a lot of people out there that feel like you do. They just want to go out and have a good time with a dog. They don't have to prove anything to anybody else, they don't have to stack you know, carcasses on the tailgate to prove that they're a macho hunter. They do it for a different reason. My dad, I don't know if it comes in that Tennessee water down there or what, but my dad was that way. He loved to go hunting with a hound or a cur dog, a tree dog, let's, let's yeah. qualify. It didn't matter to him how much a game was caught. Whatever. He did like to, he did evaluate his dogs. He liked to, he liked them fast on track. I spoke about that before in the episode about the bear dogs. He didn't want his dogs running behind. I guess that was like the Walker family was in Kentucky back when they were important dogs and trying to come up with dogs that could catch a red fox. You know, they they didn't want to be beat. Yeah. But my dad was not really that competitive. You know, he just enjoyed being able to have a good pack of dogs that could catch game when he went and uh, and just have a good time doing it. And that's what he instilled in me. And that's what I'm trying to impart through this podcast. You know, these podcasts are getting to be a dime a dozen. There's uh, new ones start every week. I just heard of a new one today. Two new ones, actually, today. And and that's good. I mean, the people get on and express themselves, you know, and and, and maybe shed light on something that someone else hadn't thought about. But our purpose here today, I think, was to try to Show people that you can just go out and have a dog that satisfies you, and that's good enough. Yeah. It doesn't have to be any more than
0: that. That's you know? one thing people need to look at is as long as your dog suits you, you're the one feeding it. I hunt real thin coons, and there's sometimes where I might not tree a coon a week if I go three or four nights they just won't find any tracks but my whole purpose of hunting is if you've had a long day at work or something just go out there turn a dog loose and clear your mind there ain't nothing out there but you and the dogs and whatever else is out there around you and it's just it's always been a kind of release for me is I guess why it's kept me hooked on it.
1: Exactly. And if we're looking for some other kind of high fame, uh, trips, you know, to the podium, so to speak, the big trophy, the big check, and that's why we do this, then I wonder if we're missing this residual to coon hunting, which is being that peace of mind that enjoyment of just watching a good dog work. You know, a good friend of mine, Lindell Price, and I have talked many, many times, and he would come every fall and hunt with me in Michigan. And it was one particular night, was just one of the most beautiful nights that you could ever imagine. And we sat on a hillside, leaned up against some big oaks, you know, just kind of cradled like a big armchair between the roots of these these oak trees, as we sat there and listened to the dog's trail, and it was just the most relaxing, beautiful. The moon was peeping up over, over the eastern ridge, and the whole landscape was just still, and nothing but the sound of the dog every once in a while opening as it worked its cold track. Yeah, and that was there something th- that insignificant thing was enough to to uh bore itself down into the very being and psyche of two guys (laughs) to the point that we've never forgot it and will always look back on it as being one of the most enjoyable experiences of our lives yeah just something that simple (laughs) you know and that would be my message to people, to young people, especially younger guys. You're certainly qualify for that is to try to find those moments, those epiphanies, if you will, where you say, this is why I do this. Yeah. This is what I enjoy about this. This is worth the lost sleep Uh the frustration sometimes for a young dog that doesn't do what we want it to do
0: you've got that one and i right. think
1: it's been said yeah <laughs> and i think a lot of time you know it's been said so many times this has been used a lot that a man's ego is a terrible thing for a dog to have to bear you know and and we do it becomes our ego you know we want we want our dogs to be perfect
0: yeah and that's one thing I've had to work on. Like I used to, I was real bad for it. I'd just push them and push them and push them, and just try to get them to be a little bit better, and all this, that, and other, and just try to constantly improve. But after a certain point, I had to look and say, "Well, this dog honestly suits me the way she is right now, and if she stays where she's at." I'm perfectly content with that. Uh I just don't, for me, and I know that this ain't going to be the case for everybody, uh there's a certain point after you start pushing the dog so hard and correcting it on stuff that it just, it lost anything that I would call pleasure. So, after a point, it... Mm-hmm. Got to where I wouldn't even call it pleasure hunting because you're always getting irritated with something or just fed up with how your dog's acting. But if you just let that kind of mentality slide and start, like you said, notice the little things and take everything in, I think you'll be a lot more uh, satisfied with how your dogs are doing and how your hunting's going.
1: I agree 100% with you my friend and I know that <clears throat> excuse me fellows I know that just like we talked about having patience with that old female and and letting her work her tracks out and all if we got into this conversation sooner or later toward the end we would get to the to the meat of it and I think that's what we've just talked about for the last ten minutes or so, is how important it is for us to find out what we want from the sport of coon hunting and how to let how to let that come to us and pay us in ways that that you know, we will benefit the most. Yeah. And it, it it's not gonna be because we got our picture on the cover of the magazine and it's not gonna be because we got the big check. You know, it's gonna be because something uh we realize that it's a journey. <laughs> yeah. That's I titled exactly my book a, Yeah. I I titled my book A Coon Hunter's Journey and it is and I'm still on it and I'm still, you know, some days I think the light at the end of the tunnel is an oncoming train, you know. But at other times I, I see that, you know, maybe the things that I've been able to do down through the years have made somehow made a difference in this sport and maybe kept it going at least for another generation or whatever. And I, I am tempted sometimes, and I'll I'll disclose this, to my listeners and to you, to say, you know, well, Steve, you know, you did this and you did that and you started this hunt and you started that hunt and you worked for this registry and you started, uh, you know, accomplished this and you accomplished that. And then I have to bring myself into check and say, no, you know, I was able to do those things. Yeah. Because I had lots of good help people that helped me. But what the journey really was was learning, was seeing all the dogs that I got to see, getting to go on all the hunts that I got to go on, getting to meet all the people that I got to meet, getting to understand things that I did, had no understanding of before, being able to see the human condition and to be more compassionate and to be able to look across a crowd of people and say, Steve, you don't have any clue what those people are going through. Be patient, be kind, you know, Yeah. lend a helping hand if you can, you know, and that was the journey. And that's the thing that I'm proud of, you know, not the, Accolades or the accomplishments, but the things that I've learned, you know, along the way. That's why I want to talk to guys like you, Elijah. When you're working your dog and you're you've got issues, I don't know all the answers, but we can talk about it and we might come up with something. Yeah, that makes it better, you know. And you're the same way. There's an old boy down at the gas station there sees your dog box, and he says, "You a coon hunter?" Yeah you know, I got this old pup, the thing's driving me crazy. I don't know what to do with it. What would you do? You might be able to help him. Might be able to lift his load a little bit, you know?
0: Yeah, I talk to people like that all the time. And I'm willing to help somebody however I can. I mean, I don't know a whole, whole lot, but if I've experienced something and I know what worked for me, I'll Least tell them what worked for me, but I mean, like Mm -hmm. you said a few minutes ago, not all dogs are the same, so you kinda have to be careful with the advice you take. Just not really be careful. Just have the mindset to well, to say where well that probably will work, but there's a chance that it might not.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. And once again. We don't want to leave the impression with anybody, but now listen here, buddy. If you'll do this, this, and this, I guarantee you, you'll have a dog that you'll be proud of. doesn't work that way. <laughs> hmm. But if you'll try some of the things that I've tried that have worked for me, they might work for you, and and you might have a solution to the problem. If not, you can mark some of those three things off the list and try something else, you know yeah but uh yeah well elijah um you've got a noble name i was impressed by your name to begin with uh, i bet you were the only kid in your class named elijah weren't you
0: uh i think out of from kindergarten to senior year i only knew uh two other ones in both schools so yeah there wasn't too many yeah. of us around
1: it's a noble name. Elijah, of course, was a prophet in the Bible, and and uh, an amazing man. I uh, have so much enjoyed talking with you, brother. I apologize that you had to be the guy to put up with all my uh, hacking and,
0: that's all right. and
1: gravel voices and uh, and all of that. Where are we right now with the dogs? Where where are we, and what what do we think about the future with them? And and where, where we stand and where we're going
0: uh right now i'm pretty happy with where i am as far as i'm actually kind of looking at easing way off on hunting that older female but i've got that young walker male younger walker male that's running and treein'. and then that leopard hound uh i've actually taken a, taken a pretty good liking to him and just his demeanor and how he acts and how he is with other people uh what I'm wanting to do moving forward is depending on how he turns out like I said before he's got the brains and everything to work with uh at some point I'd like to start breeding leopard hounds and try to get my own little thing going as far as uh, just breeding a style of dogs that I like, and hopefully being able to share that with other people that like similar dogs.
1: I got you. And so you're considering establishing a crossbred line of dogs with the Walkers and the and the uh, the Cur dogs, or what? What did I miss something?
0: There? Uh, no, it would just be uh the American Leopard Hounds.
1: Just the uh, the leopards, okay? Yeah, I got you. I got you. Well, you can do that. You're a young man. How old are you? Elijah? Uh,
0: twenty six, going on twenty seven.
1: Twenty six years old. Hmm. That's how old my dad was when I was born, <laughs> and I think I was thirty two when my son was born. But um, you certainly have a bright future. I know that we face challenges, and you you touched on that a little bit, about having places to hunt. And that's always going to be a challenge for us, and that's why we're going to have to lobby for more public land and uh, try to persuade uh, these deer hunters that we're not interfering with their deer hunting by hunting our hounds. Uh, That's
0: the biggest issue in my area.
1: Well, it is everywhere, and it is an education situation. And unfortunately, many of the people that we're trying to educate don't want to be educated. Uh, they have their preformed opinions, and uh, their their minds are are like concrete. You know, they're they're permanently set. But uh, we have to keep trying. We have to keep talking. We have to keep showing them examples. And, uh, and above all, avoid confrontation with them and go through channels, try to go through our local officials and our state officials. And, and as I said, you know, the more public land that we can acquire, uh, and all it, it's not ideal, but it's better than nothing. Yeah. And, uh, so it's a big job ahead of us, but. There's a lot to lose if we lose our sport, That's if we lose that ability to get out.
0: That's one thing I'd definitely like to say while I'm on here is that the people, <clears throat> not to discount the work you've done and that your generation have done, but the people my age and on up a little bit, we're going to have to, probably in the very near future, we need to set aside any differences We have because we're at risk of being told, no, we can't run our dogs anywhere because there's already places that you get through off a lease or something for running a coon dog during deer season. And it's just going to come a point where we're going to have to band together and show these people what we're all about and how we do it and how it's not going to affect them.
1: Well, and I think what we have to do is is to be there's strength in numbers. We simply have to organize. We have to have good leadership that knows how to address issues, who knows how to go to uh, the courthouses and the county commission meetings and the state house and present themselves in a professional way with strong talking points, facts, not not just emotion. And it's going to have to be done. And we're going to have to come out of the woods and do these things or we're going to lose it all. If we have to forfeit a hunting season one year, that's just one. How many in a lifetime would we miss if we didn't, weren't able to pursue our dogs yeah. and our sport. And I worked so many years on these kind of projects and it's easy for a guy my age, you know, been retired since 2011 saying I'm tired. You know, I, ju- I just don't want to w- have to work anymore, but I do. And I do here in Florida, and I try to work with my friend Gary Langford here, and we worked for the last two summers on trying to get wildlife management areas open to coon hunting, trying to get federal wildlife sanctuaries open to coon hunting. And we meet opposition, unbelievably, from dog hunters, deer hunters that run dogs, uh, deer with dogs that don't want to allow us to compete or, you know, to hunt our hounds on the same areas that they run in the daytime. They don't want us to run coons at night. It's ludicrous. You know, it's selfish. (laughs) It infuriates me. But you have to somehow get a grip and say, there's got to be channels that we can go through. That we can we can come and find common ground and convince you people that when the wolf comes to the door, it's going to come to your door, just the same as the coon hunter's door.
0: That's exactly and, right. Uh, I'd say, I mean, the biggest common ground is, hey guys, if they can tell us, no, you can't coon hunt here, there's absolutely nothing stopping them from saying no you can't run deer with dogs here anymore and they don't absolutely
1: especially yeah especially here in the deep south where and i would support them 100 percent their right to run deer with dogs you know but they are selfish and they don't get it they don't understand that their sport will be the next domino to fall so you know it's a big job human nature is a peculiar animal uh to deal with and uh, but we're going to continue to try and continue to do everything that we can uh, and you know unless we're doing all we can do we're not doing all we can do
0: that's exactly right
1: and and so um Elijah it's been a real joy to be with you we've been here for an hour in almost 20 minutes tonight it's been an honor to talk
0: to you honestly
1: well it has been my pleasure for sure and as i say that's why i do these podcasts is because i get to meet and to talk with people like you and uh, then i get to share it with other people out there and that's what makes it really neat and again i think my friends at du hunting supply for a making that possible. And we'll be back next week with a new podcast. I've got a couple of guests uh, lined up for the next couple of weeks, uh, and uh, we'll continue to get this uh, this uh, podcast out there for you. If you enjoy it, uh, come on to Facebook Messenger or onto the Gone to the Dogs podcast group page on Facebook and uh, leave message for us. Uh, it's a, a private group. You can join it. We'll approve you. I'm on uh, social media at Stephen F. Fielder. You can reach me there if you'd like to. I'm on Instagram at the same address, and I would love to hear from you. If you'd like a copy of my book On to the Dogs of Coon Hunters Journey, it is available online through PayPal at Steve Fielder books.com well elijah i hope you have a great evening i hope it includes being able maybe to get out with the dogs is the weather permissible up there or or is it
0: uh, still pretty cold Uh, it's raining right now fixing to turn into either ice or snow so i don't know if that's going to be happening tonight
1: oh boy your shop's going to be busy tomorrow
0: uh yeah (laughs)
1: Well, friend, I've enjoyed it so much. And as I always close out these podcasts, if someone sees you and says, hey, where's Steve Fielder? You tell them. He's gone to the dogs.